How's everybody? Let's jump right in. We're going to look at some scriptures, and uh, I'm just going to read both passages that we're going to look at quickly. Hebrews 11, I'm just going to do it from memory. Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 3. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good report. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of those things which do appear. And then come with me to Mark's Gospel, and I'm going to read a story from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. Familiar story. We're talking about the technology of the Spirit, and really about operating in faith, and what that looks like. And so in verse 24, is where I want to begin, of Mark chapter 5, it says, uh, a large crowd followed Jesus. He's, he's going with Jairus, who's the ruler of the synagogue. And so it says a large crowd followed him and pressed around him. And a woman was there that had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. And she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. But when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. I want you to notice that phrase, because I'm going to come back and hit on that in a couple minutes. She felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. And while Jesus was still speaking, some people... Oh, sorry. Uh, wrong verse. Where am I at? Thank you. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him, and he turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched you? Or who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. So we're talking about uh, technology of the Spirit. We've been looking at science. I'm not going to look at much. We've done, this is our fourth message in a series, right? And so uh, I'm not going to go as much into the science of quantum physics and stuff like that. But I am going to quote a couple of uh, quantum physicists because it's really important that we adapt our worldview, that we update our worldview to what uh, science and theologians and stuff are actually telling us about how reality works. And so scientifically, this can be measured and, and verified, uh, what they tell us is based on findings in quantum physics, there's a guy named John Wheeler. Now, John Wheeler worked on the Manhattan Project. He was a contemporary of um, Albert Einstein. He oversaw a Ph.D. program at one of the Ivy League schools. I can't remember which one right now. Um, and he actually uh, d discovered and uh, black holes and the way they operate. So this is, you know, not a uh, not a slouch in the scientific world, right? He, he's a very brilliant man, and he made this statement. He said, "We we no longer live in a uh, universe where we're just the observers." He said, "We live actually in a participatory." Universe, And the reason they say that is because they can watch stuff at a quantum level, and when there is an observer present to focus on it, it changes. So somehow, at a quantum level, everything in our world responds to you. 
responds to your attention. Whatever you put your attention on, it responds to your consciousness. It responds to your awareness. And so therefore, quantum physicists say that we are participating in what's going on out there, not just observing it, not detached from it. Now, uh, Max Planck, who is the father of quantum physics, he said this. He said, all matter originates and exists. All matter originates and exists only by virtue of a force. We must assume that behind this force, there is the existence of a conscious and intelligent mind. This mind is the matrix of all matter. Then he also said this, I regard consciousness as fundamental. I regard matter as a derivative from consciousness. That the only reason matter exists is because there's someone there to observe it. <laughs> now here's the other thing about quantum physics. It's, it's amazing. You can go out TED Talks, you know, these guys that are brilliant and figure this stuff out. I have no idea how they figure this out. I'm not that smart. But what they literally tell us is that we exist in a world that's intimately connected with our thoughts and especially our heartfelt feelings and our imagination. And I've given you several scientific examples uh, that demonstrate that. But here's what they would say. They would say that everything exists, that, that as we're standing right now, there is an infinite number of potentials and possibilities that exist. And it's not just your choices, it's not just your actions or your words that determine the, the manifestation or the solidification of those possibilities, but even just your attention and your focus. What, what they're saying is, is that with attention and focus and heartfelt belief, you can zero in on a possibility, and when you zero in on that possibility, it can become a reality in your life. And it says you can do that with an infinite number of possibilities. And so when they say, when John Wheeler says we're existing in a participatory universe, that's the kind of thing that they're talking about. It's really fascinating stuff. Now, there has also been what, what I would maybe call breakthroughs in theology in the last uh, few decades through uh, really better biblical scholarship, um, but also just some, some really great uh, theological thinkers that are out there. And uh, it's called open theism. You, you don't have to know that or remember that, but it's interesting how these two align, and I'll, I'll just explain that in a minute. But you've heard me say before, the map is not the territory, right? And so all of us live based on a mental map that we have created about ourselves, about the world, about other people, and we have a map about God. Now, people would say, well, this Bible, this book is our map about God, and, and, and that, that works, but the reality is, is that you also have a map of what you believe about the Bible. <laughs> Right? You, you, you understand what I'm saying by that? And so if I believe, if, if on my map God is good, then I might be more inclined to trust Him than if on my map God is bad. And for a lot of people, their map of God is God is half good and half bad. <laughs> and so they're iffy about trusting Him or whatever. And so anytime you learn something, anytime you integrate a new idea, what you have done is you have updated your mental map. Yes? Now, here's our problem in much of the evangelical world today and much of the Protestant world today. We need to realize that we really do have a problem because we are operating still on an antiquated map of who God is. 
Because we're operating on a map that comes from like the 13th century. Seriously. And you have to understand that the men, you know, the reformers that I have great respect for, thank God for the Reformation, thank God for Martin Luther and John Calvin and all those guys, but please understand that their cultural map was influencing their map of God, just like your cultural map influences your map of God. You, you, you You can't not do it. Right. And so the world that they lived in was very negative. It was very pessimistic. Think about all the stuff that happened in the Dark Ages. And it was very deterministic, very deterministic. And so you throw Newtonian physics on that, which says everything operates according to a certain set of laws. You throw Western philosophy on that that says God is just this great watchmaker in the sky that created the watch and wound it up and then sits back and lets it wind down. But then you've got John Calvin who comes along with a with an idea of predestination. Now the word predestination is in the Bible, but it's only used a couple of times. And 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 so what happens is is as as that expression of Christianity began to take form, it adopted those kind of deterministic, pessimistic ideas that everything is just predetermined. And so when the Bible says you're predestined, we've looked at it several times, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, that you were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world and predestined to the adoption as sons, right? So you're adopted, you're the pre, what God is predestined is about who you become, not about anything that happens. But what happened is, is because there was this deterministic worldview. You understand what I mean by deterministic worldview? It's this idea that God sat down with his, his pen and paper and he figured everything out and, and figured out all the future possibilities and all the future outcomes and he designed a certain one for you and it's written in stone and it's settled and God's determined it and that's the way it's going to be. Right? To which then, what is the point of trying? What is the point of praying? What is the point of doing anything? Right? And, and Calvin even went so far as to say, God predestined some to heaven, and God predestined some to hell. So when John Wesley comes along, he says that Calvin's God is worse than the devil. <laughs> he did. John Wesley said that. Now, I come out of a Wesleyan tradition, so I'm more inclined to agree with Wesley. But now there's this, this whole stream of what, what's called open theism, where what they're saying is, and it's really, it's, it's, it's fascinating, but what they're saying is, is that God has left the future. I mean, there are some things that are settled, right? I mean, Jesus is coming back. I mean, there isn't, there isn't, there is an end. There is a, a summing up of all things in Christ, right? Big picture. But what even theologians are telling us now is that God, uh, the, the, the future is open-ended with God. That it's, that it's open with possibilities. Now, when you begin to talk about the foreknowledge of God, that God knows everything that's going to happen, right? But we look at that in our map on a very linear sort of way. That there's one trajectory, and God sees that trajectory, and that's the way it's going to be, because God knows it, or God's decided it, or whatever. Are you breathing? But the reality is, there are infinite possibilities. So doesn't it make sense then that a God with infinite wisdom is able to look at every single possibility and know the outcome without predetermining it or being in meticulous control of what happens? Because what God is after, to be a son, understand in the ancient culture, to be a son was to go into business with your father. To be a co-laborer with daddy, right? 
And so the reality is, is that what God has designed for us, what God has designed for us is that we co-participate with Him in influencing and bringing about the future. Now one of the things, I even have to go back and edit some of my tapes that I did within the herb tapes, you know, show my age, um, whatever, recordings. From uh, that I did from just uh, when I was doing the scroll of destiny stuff, because how many of you how many of you have labored under this? God has a perfect will for your life. God has a perfect plan and a perfect will for your life, and it's our job somehow to find out the perfect will of God and line up with it. And then at the at the last day, we're going to stand before Jesus and we're going to give account for how well we lined up with God's perfect will, right? Right? Okay, I'm going to tell you, that's not true. I'm going to tell you, theologically, that's not true. And I'm not the only one that's saying it. There's guys that are a lot smarter than me that are saying it. So I'm, I'm, I'm not off kilter here. <laughs> I'll show you something in second service that when I have more time. We'll, we'll delve into this more deeply. But I want to set you free this morning. I want to set you free from bondage. Because, listen, I've probably preached about purpose and destiny as much as anybody in the you know 20 years or whatever that I've been preaching. Uh, preach is great, man. I, I love to talk. And, and here's, here's the intent behind it. And here's the power behind it. The, the idea that there was forethought about you. That, that God thought about you. That God uh, created and designed you for life. That, that there really is a purpose and a plan and a, and, a, and a destiny for your life. But let me tell you something. That can also become a bondage to us. Especially if we believe that God sat down and wrote every single, single thing that was supposed to happen to our lives. And, and I'm coming to understand that God is far more interested in our being than He is in our doing. That God is far more interested in who we become than what we do. And that God has shared His power in the universe. God has shared His power to create. God has shared His power to influence. God has shared His ability to bring about change. And, and He's given that power and He's given that ability to us. So you don't have to know that God, God meticulously is in control or meticulously has ordained something for you to know your significance. Actually, you're so significant that God did not do that. Because, see, what we have done is we have created a codependency upon God. We've created a codependency upon God where God has all the power. We have none. Our choices and influences, are, are our choices really, we, we look at our choices through a lens of good and bad. We look at our choices through a lens of how does this compare to God's perfect will and all that stuff. And so we don't live in this freedom. And actually we perpetuate sort of a spiritual babyhood. Because babies, when, when, you, ha- when you have a baby, that you have all the power. <laughs> That baby is completely dependent upon you for everything. And the only way that baby can get anything to happen in its world is to cry. Or get your attention. Or, 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 or as they get older, nag. <laughs> Pester. Whatever. Um, but, but, right? Where are you out with keep asking you over and over? Because they don't have any power. That's immaturity. And the sad thing is, is that we've created maps and models in the church that perpetuate spiritual babyhood, and we think it's spiritual, and we think it's humble, and we think it's obedience. But can I tell you, there comes a point in time where your son or daughter matures, and obedience is no longer the issue. And what if God is after relationship more than He's after obedience? 
And what if His intention is not for us to remain completely dependent upon Him with Him getting all the, having all the power and us having none? What if His intention is to share His power with, with mature sons and daughters? What if the, 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 the world in which you begin to create from this day forward, the future that you and I begin to create for our lives, for ourselves, for our community, the change, what if the change, the, the, the influence, the ability to change stuff, what if it really does rest with us? What if it is open-ended? What if it is a blank slate? What if there isn't some perfect will floating around inside the mind of God that He's demanding that you fulfill and going to hold you accountable for fulfilling? What if God has said, I want to know the desire of your heart? What if it really does? What if it really is true? Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desire of your heart. And we have, because we've had this bastard religion. I'm serious. I know that's strong, but it is a bastard religion that was birthed by God and acknowledged by God, but has not been fathered by God. And so because it does not know the Father, it cannot reflect the Father in His heart accurately. So therefore, we end up with concepts of God that He's half good and half bad. We end up with concepts of God that He's some kind of totalitarian dictator in control. We end up with concepts of God that leave us in bondage rather than in freedom. And we are called to be... The children of the Spirit are the children of the free woman. They are the children of the promise. And so what we've said, what we've said, is we've said if you delight yourself in the Lord, He'll put His desire in your heart so you can ask for it. He will give you the desire of your heart. But that that violates the text. Because the possession of the desire is inside the person. And so what if God wants us to engage Him at a level of relationship where He's interested in what is in our heart? What if we have been seeking the will of God, waiting for the will of God, when the whole time God's will has been to discover what our will is? That, that God's desire, His wish, His intention is to put wish, is, is for us as, as free moral agents to be able to wish and to be able to intend and to be able to imagine a myriad of possibilities in an open-ended future and in an open universe where everything has not been meticulously decided and He is not in meticulous control. What if He puts a power inside of us to participate and to influence? What if it really is true that we have an open, we have a blank canvas before us and we can begin to paint the future in the color that we choose? What if part of developing a heart of love, what, what if it's not this strict morality that God is desiring for us, but what if it is the quality of love? What if it is the quality of joy? What if it is the quality of peace? And when we begin to operate from those heartfelt feelings, whatever we create is going to be beautiful in the eyes of God. And so we really do get to choose. We really can say, Aaron, what's in your heart? What is it that you desire? What if faith, being the substance of things hoped for, requires a response of passionate desire 
from me in my heart? What if I have to hope for a better day before I can have faith to influence it? And what if God said, Aaron, go ahead and dream. Go ahead and hope for a better day. And then I'm going to give you access to faith, which is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And what if he ties it to the creation of the worlds because he's not just talking about physical reality because God doesn't see it as physical because quantum physicists tell us it's not. What if it's malleable? What if it's fluid? And by tapping into the force of faith, through the power of heartfelt desire, I can manifest something different. Because see here, you have this woman with the Bible. Here it says her bleeding wouldn't stop. Other translations say she had an issue of blood. But actually in the original language, what it's saying is that her monthly cycle was continuous and ongoing. So I want you to... I want you to think about this. The womb is the place inside a woman where she carries her future. Where she carries the perpetuation of her genetics. It is also the sacred place where life originates and comes forth. Now you've got to understand, from a Jewish perspective, blood is connected to the soul. That's why you had to give a blood offering to make atonement for the soul. We read life, but in the original language it's soul. The soul and the blood, it's, it's connected. So when Jesus poured out his life, he poured out his soul. He poured out his blood. That's how they understood it. Your soul is in your blood based on their anatomical understanding of humanity. Right? So you've got a woman who's stuck in a cycle. She's stuck in a cycle where she's losing her life. She's stuck in a cycle where she cannot reproduce the future. She's stuck in a cycle that keeps repeating over and over and over again every month. And she's stuck in a cycle where there should be life, there's death. Right? And in that culture, she was considered unclean. (laughs) In that culture, she was considered cursed by God. In that culture, if you touch anybody, but especially a holy person... You render them unclean because in that culture they had more faith in the power of death than they had in the power of life. They did not believe in the power of that which was holy to sanctify that which was unclean. They believed in the power of that which was unclean to taint that which was holy. And Jesus is walking with the ruler of the synagogue. Now, how powerless do you have to feel when you're stuck in a cycle that you can't break out of and you've tried every self-help program that you know how to try? You've been to every doctor, you've been to every prayer group, tower, whatever, and you're still stuck in the same cycle and all that effort that you put towards getting better, you just kept getting worse. And then we have this sick map of who God is that said that somehow God ordained that or somehow you're completely dependent. And this is the lie. This is, and that's why I was so strong when I said it's a, ba- it's a bastardized view of God because what it does is it leaves us powerless. It leaves us without access to the inheritance. Because we say it's all on God. This woman wasn't the ruler of the synagogue. She wasn't Zacchaeus. She wasn't somebody that was important enough that Jesus should come to her house. She wasn't a centurion who had authority over thousands of soldiers. She was a, she was a woman in Israel, probably not married, 
who was considered unclean and ostracized even from the religion of Israel. But when she hears about Jesus, she thinks, watch this, she has a thought of a better tomorrow. She has a thought about a different future. She has a thought that maybe she doesn't have to stay stuck in this cycle over and over and over and over again for the rest of her life. And she takes it upon herself and she, she, she sets an intention. Watch, watch what she does. She has a thought that brings hope. Maybe I can be healed. Then she sets her intention that goes completely contrary to her culture and she's going to do something that seemingly violates scripture. She's going to go out in public and she's going to, her, an unclean woman, and she's going to touch a holy man because she believes if she can do it, she'll be healed. So through the fuel of her desire, through the power of her thought, through the power of her own intention, she begins to move towards Jesus. I mean, do you think she was wondering, is this right? Is this okay? Am I supposed to do this? If I ask all the theologians and doctors of the law in my day, they're going to tell me no. Anybody I try to get religious advice from, they're going to say, no, you can't do that because you're unclean. And she's walking with the ruler of the synagogue who actually probably has the authority to put her to death if she's caught. And here's where our translation gets messed up. It's really sad. Because in NIV it says, when she, touch, when she touches Jesus, power... Now watch this, let me do this first. When she touches Jesus, power comes out from him, not through his intention, not through his desire, not through his control, even apart from his knowledge. Because he has to turn around. See, it's open-ended. It's right there in the Scriptures. If it was predetermined, God manifested in the flesh, if it was predetermined, it would have had to go through His will, not hers. If it was foreknown, He wouldn't have had to ask, who touched me? Because in God's universe, the future is open. And watch what happens. She touches Him, and this is where translation stinks. It stinks. Because our translation says her bleeding stopped. And she felt in her body that she had been healed. But in the original language, what it says is, the, the King James says it a little bit better, the fountain of her blood, but actually the word for fountain, the source of her cycle, the, the source of her death, the source of her bleeding, dried up. <laughs> In other words, when she made connection with Jesus, something went right to the source and changed. Does not say her bleeding stopped. Because if you read the text carefully, Jesus has to tell her, go and be free of your suffering. It does not take great faith to believe something after you've seen it. And Jesus commends this woman for her faith. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. So what if it's this? What if she touches Jesus and power goes into her soul to the source of 
what is causing her cycle of death and breaks it. And when that cycle is broken, she feels the reality of having received the answer before it shows up. In other words, what if she has a thought, I can touch him, I'll be healed? What if she has a desire for that new future? What if she sets her intention on that, and when she makes a connection with Jesus, she creates the heartfelt feeling that she has the answer that she's been looking for, apart from any physical evidence ever showing up yet? And what if that's why Jesus stopped? See, everybody wants to have a move of God, but this woman stopped a move of God and got his attention. Because even though the masses were thronging him or pressing into him, somebody touched him in a way that other people hadn't touched him. What if she touched him with her desire? What if she touched him with her thought? What if she touched him with her intention? What if she touched him with the feeling that she had in her body that she was already made whole even though no wholeness had yet shown up? And what if that inner congruence of thought, will, desire, and heartfelt feeling on an outcome settled? What if that was the hacking language of the universe And she got past the video game of images and went straight to the programming and wrote a new program for her life so that she didn't have to keep living in a program that kept her caught in a cycle of death and in a cycle of loss. And if what if in that moment her womb for the future was healed? So now, instead of carrying death, it could carry life. And now, instead of reproducing something that brought her pain, it could begin to reproduce something that could perpetuate a life-giving future for her. And it wasn't dependent upon Jesus coming to her house. And it wasn't dependent upon Jesus speaking a word. It wasn't dependent on whatever God had foreordained. And what if Jesus really did mean it when he said, your faith made you well? But what do I know? <laughs> Listen to this part and we'll close. Jesus didn't just say, your faith has made you well. He looked at her and he said, daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Because see, the part of the story that we miss, she was completely ostracized because of her condition. She wasn't integrated in relationships or in the community because the stigma she carried was that she was unclean. And here one of the leading rabbis of the day, right in front of the ruler of the synagogue, connects with her. She connected with the hem of his garment, but he connects with her at the deepest levels of her identity and calls her daughter.
Maybe because she's doing the exact thing that God predestined her to do, which is to act like a daughter of God who has the power of desire and the power of thought and the power of intention and the power of heartfelt feeling so that as a child of God, she could hack the future, change the programming, and manifest the goodness of God in her life on the, on the face of the earth. What if that is the potential that's lying deep inside every single one of us? So if I could set you free from one thing today, what I would set you free from is this idea that God has a predetermined, meticulously thought out plan for your life. So if you've ever sat there and thought, I missed God's plan, I missed God's purpose, I missed God's destiny, I want to set you free from that kind of thinking this morning. Because I'm going to tell you, it's an outdated antiquated map. And if we update and get current, we can realize that God is getting ready to release a prophetic company in the earth that is unlike any kind of prophetic company we have ever seen before. Because it's not going to be just finding out what's in the mind of God and telling people. It's going to be the ability to prophetically influence the future by interacting with the mind of God because God cares about what's in your mind. By interacting with the heart of God because God cares about what's in your heart. And there's a prophetic company coming that is going to do downloads into the heart of God who is the mind and the matrix of the universe. And as they program. <laughs> See, when God says, give me the desire of your heart, what, ask whatever you will and it will be done. He's, ask, he's inviting you to download or upload. Maybe that's a better metaphor. He's inviting you to upload into the mainframe of his heart and have access to his creative ability in order to change the outcomes on the planet so that there will come a company that will have so much ability to influence the future prophetically not just because they're getting downloads from heaven but because they know how to make uploads from the depths of their being Close our eyes. Why don't you just, just close your eyes. Just soak in the presence of God right now. How many of you can feel the presence of God? <laughs>